You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. Amen, amen, amen. Good to see you this morning. My name is Jason Hatch. I'm the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. And for the past many months, we've been working through a book uh, called Romans. And we're pausing. And this week is going to begin a three-week series talking about living life on mission. Uh, We're calling this little mini-series Let's Go because we believe that God has given a mission to us very specifically to make disciples of all nations for the glory of God. And every Christian has a place in that mission. So we're going to pause Romans for a few weeks and really tease out some things both uh, theologically and very, very practically about what it means to be a Christian who is living on mission for Jesus in the world. Uh, when a person becomes a Christian, that's very similar to when a, uh, a civilian signs up or enlists in the military. You don't just join a family. You don't just join an organ- organization or a group of people. You join a mission. And every soldier, they may come from different backgrounds. They may have different jobs. Some may be radio uh, operators, some may be soldiers, some may be uh, snipers, some may be intel, but everyone at some point in their job and their calling, it goes towards the bottom line of accomplishing a mission. And Christians are the exact same way. When you become a Christian, you don't just join a family, although that's true, you join a mission and there is no such thing as a Christian who is not to be living on mission. Every Christian in some way or another is a missionary, though we come from different backgrounds. Uh, We believe we have different uh, passions and different gifts from the Holy Spirit. All of those exist to, in some form or fashion, move the mission of Jesus forward. Listen, not just in the world, but we're, we're absolutely convinced that you exist as a Christian. The Holy Spirit has given you a gift for the movement of the mission in your neighborhood, in your family, in your job, and even in Midland, Texas. That you see this picture that God uh, interrupts human beings' lives that are living in the world, that are separated from him, and he saves them out of the world only to turn them back around and send them back into the world as light and salt and missionaries. So for this entire series, I want you to really kind of, uh, when we say mission uh, or, or missionary, I want you not to think about a missionary that sells all their belongings and moves overseas, although we have a very special regard and place in our hearts for that type of missionary. I want you to think the role and the job that every single Christian has to move the mission of Jesus forward in the world and in Midland, Texas. And the main mission, if we were to um, try to summarize in a thesis statement the mission, uh, we would be hard-pressed to do a better job than Jesus himself did. Uh, After Jesus died, was in the grave, just like we sang about for three days, the grave had no hold on him. He rose from the dead. Before he ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples what we call the great co-mission. Jesus already had a mission, and he decided to share that mission with his followers and the church that he had created. And so he invited us in to help accomplish his mission, and it's now our co-mission. We're on mission with Jesus, and that mission very simply is to make disciples of all nations for the glory of God. The mission existed before the church. So it's not like he created a church and then he's like, I got to keep these people busy. Uh, And so let me create a mission for them. He had a mission for the glory of Christ to cover the globe like the waters cover the sea. And so in order to fulfill that mission, he created something that we know of as the church. And this is why we say often that we are a gospel-centered, what? Church. 
missional family. We are a family that has been brought together and we belong to one another through the gospel and we are a people on mission. We think there is a mission to accomplish not just around the world but in Midland as well. So that's the big mission to make disciples of all nations for the glory of God and there are a bunch of small missions that are included in that. Uh, Being missional involves a lot of different things. It involves evangelism, sharing the gospel with somebody that uh, perhaps has never heard it or never embraced it. Uh, It includes prayer, praying towards certain things. It includes uh, serving needs around you, both in the church, maybe in your family, uh, perhaps in your neighborhood. It includes uh, teaching people the Bible. It includes encouraging one another. It can include hospitality. It can include financial giving. But all of those things, at the end of the day, exist to make disciples of all nations for the glory of God. The first book that describes the, the, the early church and the first Christians, as we know them, after the resurrection, when they were gathered together in local bodies, the first book that describes those people is called what? Everybody say Acts. Everybody say it louder, Acts. You know why it's called Acts? Because they were known for doing stuff. They were known because they were a people that were about the mission of God in the early church. You read through the book of Acts. It's not like they thought there were certain people that were going to be involved in the mission and everybody else was just bystanders or riding the pine, so to speak. Everyone believed that they were involved in the mission. Everyone was praying. Everyone was desiring their friends to become Christians and come to faith. Everyone was giving. Everyone was serving. And so they, like Luke wrote a book that describes these first people that were given the Great Commission and how they described it. It was like, they're, they're serious about the gospel and that gospel being lived on mission in the world. And so we have this chronology, this chronicle of the early church, and it's called Acts because they were people that lived their life on mission for Jesus. Uh, there, there's, the, the church is designed by God to be a countercultural presence of gospel-centered missional family. And the problem is, is that oftentimes uh, the culture can very easily uh, derail that and and, and hijack the mission of the church where the church becomes uh, not countercultural, but just very cultural, not swimming upstream and being salt and light, but just going downstream with everyone else. And so I want to tease out just for a moment um, what it looks like when a church is more formed by the culture, and in our case... In the United States, you know this, we live in a very consumeristic culture, agreed? You watch anything uh, that's geared towards uh, advertisement, and it is geared towards telling you that uh, you're a consumer, and uh, everybody else uh, exists to meet your needs, and if you go somewhere, then you expect the most incredible customer service, because we are a consumer society, and there's nothing wrong with consuming probably consume some sort of food this morning, uh, but we all know that there's a problem with over-consuming, right? If all we do is consume, then there's a problem. And we live in a culture that is a consumeristic culture, and if we're not careful, that seeps into the church, and that is the enemy of a church and Christians that live on mission. So there's, there's missional churches that believe and love the gospel and want to live our lives on mission, and if we're not careful, the cu- culture can uh, change the, the very basis, basic culture of a church to where it's not missional, it's consumeristic. And I want to uh, really kind of tease this out for a minute because there's a danger um, that we have. We're a ch- very young church, only five years old, um, but there's still this cultural push for us to become a church like this. So as I read through these things and kind of tease these out, just know this is what we do not want to become. Are you all ready? ready? 
A church that's formed more by a consumeristic culture than the gospel itself uh, is normally full of Christians that love to show up uh, to church by and large to be served, not to serve. And so really demand a program for everything. And if we have a need, we want to show up so that somebody serves us, so that we get the right uh, coffee, the right temperature, all the chairs are set out nicely. There's programs that serve us. And, and over time, it, it's not a bad thing to be served. We hope that all of you are served in one way or another. But if Christians show up at, to a church solely to be served, that's not a missional mindset. That's a consumeristic mindset. Uh, preaching in this uh, culture tends to gravitate more towards... Uh, um, entertainment uh, than towards equipping the saints, as Ephesians says, for the work of ministry. I don't know if you know this, but we are not here for entertainment. Um, if you want to be entertained, I would highly recommend maybe going to a movie uh, or some other things that are much more entertaining than me. Uh, but if a, if a church isn't careful, but, it's, but instead of living on mission, uh, just trying to uh, entertain people. And so we don't have a smoke machine, although I did joke one time about getting a sand machine um, that will just blow sand in your face. So if you're from West Texas, you at least feel at home. Um, if, 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 if we move from missional mindset to just consumeristic mindset, then most of the church, they see the church staff and the paid leaders in the church as the ones who do the work, as the ones who try to accomplish the mission while we just enjoy being served and sitting and, and consuming. Uh, Christians consume more in this setting than they contribute um, here to take, not necessarily here to give. There is a growing sense of entitlement, which if... If you're seeing the same culture as I am, that is a growing problem in our country and in our culture, this feeling of entitlement, that we are entitled for others to serve us, that actually grows in a consumeristic church. Uh, Christians become much more critical of everything in a church that's not on mission, in a church that is uh, driven towards the culture of consuming, because they're consuming, they then they get, get to critique and be critical of everything. Well, uh, the, the sermon, I've heard better, you know, I think Chandler could have done a better job, or Keller by far could have done a better job, and, uh, and I think maybe the temperature in the room could have been a little different, and maybe the volume, and maybe the setup for the kids' ministry, like, it, it becomes very much uh, critical. And how many of you have ever been criticized for anything? Normally, you have two types of people. You have people that are doing things and people that are criticizing things, and rarely do the two meet. Because if you're criticizing, you rarely have time to do something, and if you're doing something, you rarely have time to criticize someone. So if you've ever done something, especially something that matters spiritually for Jesus, you've led a Bible study, you've tried to uh, lead a small group, you've done something for Jesus, no doubt you have been criticized. And I just want to encourage you by saying this. You will rarely be criticized by someone who is doing more than you. Because there's a nature in which if you're here to consume, then you get to critique and to criticize those people who are there to serve you. And that is a natural bend if the culture takes, uh, has its way in the church. Uh, prayers. Prayers. If we're not missional but we're consumeristic, our prayers tend to gravitate towards ourself, uh, towards prayers that give us more ease in our lives, more comfort in, uh, in our own little worlds. Christians, honestly, will, if there's not a, a clear call that we are a people to live on mission, Christians will inevitably get bored. You'll get bored because you're, you're not doing anything. You're just learning something, and if there's no outlet to put that to work, then uh, you just kind of get bored. How many of you knew growing up, you did not tell your dad that you were bored? Why? Hey, Dad, I'm bored. I have nothing to do. He said, 
I've got plenty to do. And a Christian that lives on mission is never bored because there's always somebody to reach and there's always something to do. And so if we gear more towards um, consuming than living on mission for Jesus, you just kind of get bored and there's not much to do. And during the week, a Christian that has been uh, in this culture, in this church culture of consumerism, uh, goes throughout their week and they never think about how God wants to use them or you to reach your neighbors with the gospel, to serve someone in need. You just kind of go along your way, live your life hoping that some of the paid staff will do the work of ministry. That is a church that's formed by the consumer culture. And so let's let's look on the other side of this. Let's look at a, a church that is formed and shaped by the gospel created, it has created us into a family that is willing to live on mission for Jesus, which is what we are trying to accomplish. From the very beginning, that's what we mean when we say we are a church, that we are a gospel-centered. That means who Jesus is and what he's done is the center of our identity and our activity. That is what we rally around. And as we rally around that we're family, that means we love each other. That means we uh, celebrate when we each other celebrate. That means we mourn when others mourn. We take care of one another like family, but we're also living on mission. We have a mission to accomplish. And so what is a church that is a countercultural church that is formed by the gospel living on mission look like? Christians show up to be served, yes, but to also serve. There has has to be both. A, a true Christian shows up to a healthy church saying, yeah, I'm going to be served today by all sorts of different people with all sorts of different gifts, and I'm also going to show up to give something every day. That's a healthy, gospel-centered church. Preaching doesn't tend to try to... Um, just keep people on the edge of their seat and uh, entertain them, but preaching is a way to uh, explain the gospel, to encourage your heart, uh, to challenge you, to uh, let the Holy Spirit convict you of things that need to be uh, changed, need to be repented of. And as Ephesians 4 says, one of my jobs as a preacher is to equip the saints. Who is that? Who are the, who are the saints? If you're a Christian, raise your hand. You're a saint. Put that on your card. Put that in your email. I am, you know, I'm Saint Don. You can sign all your emails that way. You're a saint. So I exist in my preaching to equip you to do the work of ministry, to give you the tools, and to deploy you out into the world to serve Jesus on his mission. Uh, I read a pastor a long time ago. He said that there's coming a time, and he saw this shift in the culture in the United States that was seeping into churches, and he said uh, there's going to be a time when the, uh, the, the, the preaching role, it's not going to be shepherds feeding sheep. It's going to be clowns entertaining goats. And maybe you've been to a church like that, but our job is not to entertain. Our job is to feed the sheep and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. A gospel-centered church living on mission, we grow in humility and in gratitude, not in entitlement. We grow in humility, wanting to be other-centered uh, rather than just growing in entitlement. All Christians will feel the responsibility. Don't miss this. In a gospel-formed missional church, all Christians, everyone who belongs to Jesus will feel the responsibility to be engaged at some point in the mission, to see disciples made for the glory of God. Everyone is being discipled, and everyone, even if you have been a Christian for a week, is engaged in helping disciple other people. Uh, nobody is bored there, until, the, until the entire nations are reached with the gospel, there should not be a bored Christian. Amen? 
until all 150 plus or minus thousand people in Midland, Texas uh, bend their knee and bow their heart to Jesus Christ, there should not be a bored Christian because our mission is not accomplished yet. In a gospel-formed missional church, our prayers aren't only about self, because I think self-prayers are fantastic, I think they're necessary, but we add to those very outward-focused missional prayers. You can tell that you're more geared towards helping Jesus accomplish the mission by how you pray. If all of our prayers are about, all of our prayers are about us and our ease and our comfort and not about the lost people that we know and that we hope come to faith and we hope Jesus will use us to reach our neighbors with the gospel, then that's very telling. And I don't think anybody can put it better than John Piper did uh, in his book called Let the Nations Be Glad. He's talking about the difference in prayer with a uh, consumeristic mindset in the church and a missional mindset. He says this, probably the number one reason that prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, that's you, And he gave them a critical mission to go and to bear fruit to make disciples. And he handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And he said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission... And if you seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give you tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. But what have millions of Christians done, Piper says? He says, we have stopped believing that we are in a war. There's no urgency. There's no watching. No vigilance, no strategic planning, just peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the wartime walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and our cabins and our boats and our cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. When we believe the gospel and embrace the mission Jesus has given us, it changes our prayers to just being about us, to asking him to help us push the mission of Jesus forward on the planet. So, uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Romans, but we're going to skip ahead, so I'm kind of pausing Romans, um, but not really, because we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 10 through 13. Uh, This is not talking about the gospel or what you have to do to become a Christian. Uh, This is talking much more about the implications of the gospel, gospel, what you do because you are a Christian. I mean, we've worked hard to lay down this is the gospel of Jesus. It's about what he has done for us, not what we do for him. And when you embrace that, then he hands you a mission. Now that you're a Christian, now that you belong to a church, here are some things that you need to do. So in Paul's mind, this, is, this describes um, somewhat the missional activity of local churches who have already believed and embraced the gospel. Romans chapter 12, if you're there, say ready, says this, love one another with brotherly affection. That's an incredible challenge. If you belong to a church, then you're called and, 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 and commanded by God to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor It's like a race trying to see who can honor someone else the most. Could you imagine being part of a community where everyone treated it that way? 
Everyone woke up trying to outdo you with honor. I'm going to give you more honor. No, I'm going to give you more honor. No, I'm going to give you more honor. No, I'm going to honor you more. That, that, that's what the gospel does in people. Verse 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal. Basically saying, don't be lazy. Don't get bored. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. That's an action word. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. In verse 13, this is what I'm going to camp out on this morning. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And seek to show hospitality. This morning, I'm going to spend the rest of my time, that was a long introduction, talking about gospel hospitality because I think that is one of the simplest ways that you can live on mission yet has potentially the most powerful impact uh, if you're going to reach people around you with the gospel. So we're going to unpack what is Paul asking us to do as a church that has embraced the gospel to, quote, seek which is an active verb he's commanding us to do, to seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is a a big issue in the Bible. In fact, I think it's strange that he puts that in line with these other things. Like he's talking about uh, love, like selfless, sacrificial love. That's how we need to be. We need to be patient when we have some type of tribulation. And then he just throws in that same linear thinking, this idea of hospitality. He's like, be willing to lay yourself down for someone else. And oh, by the way, get a hot dog with your neighbor. Like he, he throws in this unbelievable idea of hospitality in the middle of this really weighty sentence because it's a, it's a weighty thing. And it's mentioned in many places in the Old, in the old and New Testament uh, being hospitable. And honestly, it's so important that uh, Paul includes it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the list of qualifications for elders. He says, you can't be an elder or a leader in the church unless you're willing to consistently open up your home, uh, especially to non-believers that will come and sit at your table, share a meal and some drink with you. That's how important hospitality So five things um, that I want to do, and I'll do this relatively quickly. Uh, We'll talk about, number one, what then is hospitality? What is he talking about in verse 13? Two, what is the power of hospitality in Christian history? Three, what are the enemies for us in our culture of seeking to show hospitality? Four, what are the opportunities we have to obey what he's commanded in Romans 12, 13? And number five, what what is God's hospitality? If you're ready, say ready. This is uh, just a very simple way that we as a church can live on mission for Jesus. He says, seek to show hospitality. So number one, what is hospitality? Here's a working definition that I'll use, putting together multiple things from the New Testament. It's practically showing kindness uh, to someone, especially to strangers or non-believers, and it's often expressed by sharing food, drink, and your kitchen table. Rosaria Butterfield, who is just a brilliant lady that's written much about uh, this idea of Christian hospitality, she defines it this way. She says that radically ordinary hospitality, which is an interesting, it's very radical, yet it's very simple and very ordinary. She defines it this way. It's using your Christian home or apartment or flat or whatever you might have, uh, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors into family of God. 
That's hospitality. It's trying to use your table and food because food has an unbelievably uh, disarming effect on people to meet your neighbors, to let those neighbors become friends, and to over time through that relationship share with them the gospel and what God has done to serve their needs, to pray for them. God uses hospitality in some incredibly powerful ways to see non-believers become Christians to see the mission of Jesus accomplished in the world. Number two, the power of hospitality in Christian history. This is like if you ever buy a white car and then you notice you drive around, what is all that you see? White cars, or if you're in Midland, dirty white cars. It's like, I don't know, I just kind of came up and now I see it everywhere. That, that, that's how hospitality has been for me in the past uh, a few years. Once I began reading about it, it is everywhere in the Bible and honestly has been one of the most powerful tools in church history for the advancement of the mission of Jesus. Consider a few things. Um, this was the setting for much of Jesus' ministry. Much of what Jesus did, taught, said, accomplished, the backdrop of that was he did that because of some type of hospitality. He was always eating and drinking with sinners. That's us. Because he didn't have any other options of other people to hang out with. So he decided he was going to engage sinners through eating and drinking with them. This is what Luke 15 says. Now the tax collectors and the sinners, they were all drawing near to hear him. Where? How? And the Pharisees and the scribes, that was the the religious, the self-righteous people, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus was known as a person who was always eating and drinking with people. In fact, um, he would even invite himself over, which was, it's a cultural thing in many places of the world. Maybe not so much in the United States, but you remember the wee little man, Zacchaeus, couldn't see over the crowd, climbs up in what? A sycamore tree to what? to see what he could see. And Jesus sees him, and what does he say? I'm going to your house today, Zacchaeus. So maybe you're thinking, I'm more like Jesus than I thought. I'm inviting myself over to people's houses all the time. Jesus was like, listen, uh, and and that's a a very honoring thing in many cultures. Even in India, uh, that's a very honoring thing. I've been there uh, a few times in many places around the world. It's an honoring thing to say, listen, I'm coming to your house, and I'm going to give you the honor of preparing me a meal. And yet Jesus did that with Zacchaeus, so maybe uh, that's your takeaway. Before you leave, you're like, I'm going to invite somebody over to my house. Uh, Steak, I like steak, and I'm coming over today. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, after she was healed, she gave her house and opened it up to become the center of the mission for Jesus because of hospitality. She was hospitable and opened up her home, and that would become in Capernaum the the home base of Jesus' ministry. Uh, One scholar says this, when he was reading through Luke's gospel about the ministry, of Jesus. He said, in Luke's gospel, and this is not necessarily highly theological, but it's, uh, it's, it's very practical, very, very telling. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. That's how he describes Luke's gospel. Another scholar says that Jesus ate and he drank his way through the gospels. If there was wine and there was food and there were sinners, Jesus was there. He's always eating. He's always relating. And much of his ministry, the backdrop of that was hospitality. Someone opened up their home, brought in some food, because food is just that that God forms people around the table and around hospitality. Imagine if I invited you to my house. I said, I'm going to set two chairs facing each other, and we're going to talk about stuff. Would anybody come? 
My wife would even be like, I don't know. But if I say, oh, yeah, there's going to be a table and some food and drink, that's just incredibly disarming. It's the backdrop of Jesus' ministry. Second thing on the power of hospitality in Christian history is the early Christians, much of the way that the, the mission of Jesus on the world spread so quickly was not only through prayers, was not only through the boldness of Christians, it was incredibly leveraged through Christian hospitality. Because there were no Airbnbs, there were no hotels, there, were no, there was no price line. And so in the Roman Empire, after Paul had already written this letter to the churches in Rome, commanding them to seek to show hospitality, listen, they did it. And they were serious about hospitality. So if you were a stranger that had to show up in Rome, there was no place to rent out. You would normally find yourself in the home of a Christian because Christians were willing to open up their homes. They talked about Jesus Christ at their dinner table. People were saved, and they would take the gospel back to their respective homes. That's one way that the gospel spread so uh, quickly. Uh, in the third century, after they had been uh, command, obeying this command in chapter 12, verse 13, for many years, there were some global pandemics that hit. You ever heard of those? These were bad. Uh, 30% of the Roman Empire was wiped out in one of these uh, global pandemics and these plagues. And while everyone else during these pandemics were fleeing the cities, Christians were going to the city trying to obey what Paul said, seek to show hospitality. They were opening up their homes. They were inviting Christians that were sick into their homes and trying to care for them. They were inviting non-Christians into their home. And at this point in time, it was illegal in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. And, yet, and they were putting their lives on the line to serve not just their friends, but their enemies. And this became such a popular idea that the Christians were opening up their home. Something was developed that you and I know very well, the idea of a hospital Maybe you didn't know that, but a hospital, the idea of a hospital was birthed out of Christian hospitality. It was radical hospitality. And, and because of the way the Christians operated, uh, the gospel would, the movement and the mission of Jesus would just expand exponentially. And even here at Redeemer, uh, at Redeemer, I believe that hospitality has served us incredibly well. Chances are, if you're here very long, you're going to find yourself in somebody's home, at somebody's table, eating a meal. Maybe it's staff, maybe it's one of the pastors, maybe it's one of the community group leaders, maybe it's just somebody that's invited you over. Uh, in the first few years that we were planting this church, uh, we had hundreds of people in our house uh, for a meal. And I don't say that to brag at all. Uh, I say that to say, oh, we believe in hospitality enough to to model it and to do it, and it's incredibly powerful. It's now part of the culture of community groups that you're going to find yourself at someone's table, sharing a meal, sharing a drink, and talking about Jesus. It's been unbelievably powerful in our culture. So if you're here, then you, you're probably in one of two camps. You say, yeah, that's my story. Hospitality has served me well. Uh, maybe you're here saying that has not been me. Then that your job is to invite yourself over to someone's house today. If you don't know their name, just call them Zacchaeus. Say, I'm coming over. I'll be there at noon. Y'all can say noon because you are the first service. 1 o'clock for the second service. One thirty for those who are helping tear her down. Number three, what are the enemies then of hospitality? If, if Paul commands us, not just, not just Rome, not just the Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago, but the Christians in Midland today to seek to show hospitality. What are the barriers to that? What are the enemies of that? I'm glad that you asked. Number one, we've talked about this before. A barrier to gospel hospitality is what? Southern hospitality. <laughs> they are very different. 
Southern hospitality is about the host, not the guest. Southern hospitality is about our image, not the relationship. Uh, Southern hospitality, the house has to be uh, spotless. The doilies have to be out. And I don't even know what a doily is. I just know that that's like a thing. The doilies have to be out. The kids have to have clothes on. I mean, there's like, like this idea of Southern hospitality is not the idea of gospel hospitality and actually becomes a barrier because then you have, it will just wear you out if that's what your goal is. If your goal is to try to push forward the, this image that everything is awesome in our house, the kids always have clothes on, uh, the, the, everything is so neat and so nice and so clean, that will actually keep you from doing what Paul's commanded us to do, to seek to show hospitality. So one big enemy of gospel hospitality is southern hospitality. Number two, big enemy to gospel hospitality is busyness. It's being too busy. And listen, I, I understand that and I get that the world is busy. It's incredibly busy. The demands of your job, of your family, of sports, of, of school, it's busy. And so I think if we're going to be serious about living on mission and obeying what Paul commanded us to do, then we have to at some point put it in our calendar and make it a priority or else we're just too busy. Could you imagine if, uh, if everyone in this room, just one day a month, set it aside on your calendar that this is the day that we're going to seek to show hospitality and make it a priority to push some of the busyness out? If we don't do that, then busyness is an incredible enemy of what we've been called to do. And I, I think this is interesting. Let me tease this out just for a moment. In places around the world today, where the mission of Jesus is moving forward incredibly quickly, there's almost a direct correlation that those places, their cultures are slower and they have more time for relationships at the dinner table. And just because they have more time in hospitality to share the gospel, that becomes exponential for the spread of the gospel. It's almost a direct correlation. So if we want to see like, the gospel in our city change people, busyness is just an enemy of that in some places. Number three, this is the third enemy of hospitality, goofy priorities. I couldn't come up with a better term than goofy. Just weird priorities that we're all prone to do that get us out of whack. And basically, it's when we love our stuff more than we love people, and I think we're all prone to do that, definitely in Midland, Texas. Uh, some of you, maybe you've said something uh, to the effect of this. Uh, maybe you've got a lot of people in your house. Maybe you have kids in your house that are crazy, and you say, because of these people, we can't have nice things. Anyone? <laughs> That's good. We, yeah, Nicole in the back, she's like, yes. Oh, because of these people, oh, we can't have nice things. The danger is a lot of people wouldn't say this with their words, but they will with their lives. Because of these things, we can't have these crazy people. You see, there's a difference. Like, okay, we got to choose one or the other sometimes because people are messy. Being hospitable and opening up your home is messy. It requires sacrifice. And so if we love our stuff and nothing can be broken in our house, then it's going to be very difficult to show gospel hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield says it this way. She's talking about the way that we view our homes. And if you're a student of the culture and know that in the United States some, some things have drastically changed in the last few decades, the front porches, this architecturally has shown a cultural change. The front porches have gotten smaller, back porches have gotten bigger, fences have gotten taller. That we're, we're an isolated culture. 
And we sometimes view our homes as this is the place I get to go. I don't want to talk to my neighbor. Oh, my gosh, my neighbor's in the yard. I've got to open the garage door and sneak in real quick and shut the door before they get over here. Like, there's a temptation to see our home that way. So she's talking about the way that we view our home is equivalent to the way that we view the mission of Jesus. And she says this, the household that loves things too much and loves people too little, cannot honor God through the practice of radically ordinary hospitality. If you show up to our house, chances are there, you might have to fold some laundry. Um, everything is not going to be perfect, and the kids may or may not have clothes on if you count a cape as clothes. And it's like, because we, we, it's just exhausting to try to keep up with the Southern hospitality. It's more important to engage in people and relationships. Um, number four, and I'll close with this. What in the world is this all about? Uh, what in the world, uh, we've been given this command to, to seek hospitality. How do we do it? He says, seek to show hospitality. That's an active thing, not a passive thing. That means you have to go do it to seek hospitality, not to just hope that it comes to find you. Uh, and I think that this is a cultural moment in the United States that this is an incredible opportunity for the church to live on mission. People are lonely, more lonely than they've ever been, more isolated than they've ever been. In Midland, Texas, we have people that have moved from all over the state and really the nation. Many of them don't have friends or family. They want some connections, and I pray that they find them in your home in your apartment. We have an opportunity to obey what Paul has commanded us to do, to seek to show hospitality. So I would encourage you to think about putting it in your calendar, trying to obey what Paul says, like once a month, once a week, whatever it might be for you. Start small, start somewhere, but you can do it. Do you remember the movie Dodgeball? It's, <laughs> stay with me. <laughs> uh, there were some people that were intimidated, like, we don't know how to play dodgeball, and he starts throwing wrenches at them. He says, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Similar. It's similar. If you can eat a hot dog, you can have hospitality. You're like, I'm a vegetarian. If you can eat a hot dog bun, you can show hospitality. Assume you're like, I'm gluten-free. If you can have a snow cone, you can show hospitality. Like, I don't like sugar. If you can eat ice, right? I'm just saying for every excuse, there's at least one more opportunity. It's very, it's so simple, yet it's one of the most powerful ways. Ask somebody, get them into your house. And I'll say this, we're going to roll out this summer. We're doing block parties again. Hey! How many of y'all were here in 2017, 18 when we did block parties? That was our attempt to try to provide you an opportunity to live hospitably. Honestly, that came out of me preaching and thinking through Ephesians 4. It says, equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is one of the works of ministry? To seek to show hospitality. How are we going to do that? We bought a party trailer. We outfitted this with enough stuff. We're going to do 14 block parties. I want to invite you to be a part of one, two, 14 of them. Invite your neighbors. Go knock on one person's door that you don't know. Invite them to the block party. After that, connect with them. Invite them into your home. Build a relationship. As Rosaria Butterfield says, use your Christian home in a way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors into family of God. And oh, by the way, in the United States right now, that is the most effective way to evangelize. All the stats that I've read recently say that when people are coming to faith in Christ now, it's not primarily through information. It's through a friendship with a Christian that they trust. 
It's not just listening to a podcast. That information is fantastic. But it's a relationship with a Christian that they trust. This is a moment in history where hospitality is an incredible way to live on mission. And I think it's a gospel defiance about some of the negative parts of our culture. If you're going to show hospitality, it's you saying, no, I'm going to defy loneliness. I'm going to, I'm going to defy isolation, and I'm going to seek to show hospitality. I'm going to defy stress, and we're just going to shut down the to-do list, put the computer away, put the phone away, invite some neighbors over, and we're just going to laugh and let the stress melt away. It really is a gospel defiance of some of the negative things in our culture. So some of you that like to be rebels, you know who you are. This is your moment, like to, to rebel against the negative things in our culture by saying, no, we're going to sit down and we're going to enjoy good food and good wine and a good meal and good drink with some friends and we're going to talk about Jesus together. Number five, God's hospitality. Because all of this command, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's not primarily talking about having a meal with another person. That's secondary to what's really going on. The, the invitation for Christians to be hospitable with neighbors is so deeply embedded with the entire mega story of the gospel. It's th- that hospitality is truly talking about what God has done, the invitation he's given to humanity, what he's doing in the world, and what he wants to do through you to live on mission. Um, Dustin Willis says this. He says, the entire story of history, it's about God's hospitality to humanity. And you think about that Jesus literally came, invaded the human race, and didn't just set up meetings to transfer information. He set up tables so that he could have a relationship over a meal with us. And I was reading this this morning. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come and sup with him and him with me. He's talking about this relationship at a table, communion. You think about the last uh, few hours that Jesus had on the planet before the cross, and we don't call it the last lecture. We call it what? The last supper. He had some incredibly important things to say with some people that meant the world to him, and so he set up a meal, and he had hospitality in the upper room. And he gave them, and he gave them, and really us, this gift of communion. Why didn't he tell us just to remember that he died for us? Why did he include bread? Why did he include drink? Why did he include the table? Because he says, like, as often as you do this, first of all, you remember me, but I, Jesus says, I'm not going to eat of the bread or drink of the fruit of the vine until we do it together in the kingdom. It's this unbelievable invitation for Christians to have hospitality, like true relationship with God. And I don't know if you know this, but that's probably going to mark the first few moments that we have in heaven with Jesus. We call it what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. We don't call it introduction into heaven classes, right? Like you show up and the first thing, it seems like the first thing that happens when the whole body and the whole bride of Christ is there together is there's a huge banquet, there's a huge feast, there's incredible food. And I don't, I can't prove this theologically, but I think that the food in heaven will not have calories. I think the drink will not, nobody will be drunk. It will be all of the good things of a feast. None of the bad will be around a table. Jesus will be at the head of the table and we're inaugurated into the kingdom through God's hospitality through a relationship that we get to share forever and ever at a table with food with Jesus. 
And I was thinking about this just the other day. Uh, one of the last Thanksgivings that I got to spend uh, before my grandfather passed away, uh, it was a big massive party at their ranch up in the Panhandle in Memphis, Texas, and all of my siblings and their kids and, and uh, aunts and uncles and parents, everybody was there, and it's just an incredible time. The Hatch family loves Thanksgiving. That's the big holiday for us. And I was uh, thinking because that, that last time I remember there was just so much food, so much dessert, so much drink. Everybody was there. Everybody was laughing. Everybody was telling stories. And my grandfather, the, the patriarch of the whole thing, was not even talking. I just remember seeing him. He was at the head of the table, and he was just kicked back in his chair, just smiling. It's like he just loved the idea. I'm sure he was thinking, like, I did this. Like, I brought all these people together, and he was just enjoying the laughter and the stories and the joy. And I don't know what that first, what the marriage of the supper will be like. I kind of have this idea that Jesus is just going to sit back and be like, this is awesome. Like, I did this. I, I died for these people to deal with their sins, to bring them into a family, to bring them around a table, to have a relationship that truly the gospel story, it's about hospitality. It's about God inviting us into a relationship, inviting us into a friendship that's sealed over food. And so that's why hospitality is important to us. It's not just meeting your neighbors, it's reflecting the gospel and inviting them into that story. Seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. So grateful that you have saved us. You've forgiven us. You've adopted us into your family. You've called us out of the world only to fill us with the Spirit and with some tools for the mission, and you've sent us back in. Father, I pray that every Christian in this room this morning feels the weight and the opportunity and the privilege that they are a missionary, that they have a role to see people in their neighborhoods and families and businesses come to faith in Christ. I pray that you would use them. I pray that you would use their living room and their dining room table for that. God, we help. pray that your spirit would fill us up and help us to know how, how it looks like in our life and what we should do to show radical gospel hospitality. May it not be primarily about the food, but I pray that it's primarily about you, Jesus. We know that you want to invite people in to make strangers families of God, and we know that you want to use our tables for that. Help us to be your missionaries and your people in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.